Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. You can also check out my Audible on the African-American Athlete on Amazon. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness, The Institute of Black World and Political Activism in the 1970s, as well as Blood, Sweat and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lewis. How are you? Oh, well, <laughs> I got the full name. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good, man. I just I went digging yesterday, digging in the crates, as they say. I know I know you don't dig Derek White. I'm trying to get you into your oh, to your vinyl, gosh. but I picked up some some Nina Simone, some Sade, some Josh White, and the MC Hammer. Let's get it started. Tape for 99 cents. So I am feeling good. You feeling good with let's get it started? Like too big. MC? Oh my god, it's 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 still wrapped too. I, I don't even know if I'll ever open it up, man. I don't I don't know if you guys listen to this in Kentucky or not, but wow, man. wow, shots it's, fired. It's, yes, yes, yes. Nappy roots didn't hit until like mid nineties, so I don't uh, know. We had some good times with nappy roots. Hey, good times with nappy roots. <laughs> oh man, yeah. What else is going on? Let's see. Baseball's in mid full swing. We had a uh, we talked about uh, the World Series. It is now today. As of today, what is it? Three two. Dodgers three two and I predicted Dodgers in six so there we go okay so didn't watch a game all year and I predicted Dodgers in six so, <laughs> so you got a chance to hold out uh that's right. please don't follow Lou to Vegas that's what that means um tonight we got a special guest to talk about voting as we are about uh by the time we finish this podcast we will be seven days out from an election uh, we have Professor Charles McKinney uh, from Rhodes College. Let me introduce this brother. He is the Neville Frayerson Bryan Chair of Africana Studies and an Associate Professor of History. He is the author of Greater Freedom, the Evolution of the Civil Rights Struggle in Wilson, North Carolina, as well as the co-editor of An Unseen Light, which is about uh, civil rights movement in Memphis, Tennessee. Rhodes College, for those who are not aware, is in the great city of Memphis, 10, home of 3-6 Mafia. Chuck, welcome to the show. Thank you, brother. It's very, very happy. I'm very, very happy to be here, ready to chop it up with y'all a little bit. Uh, let's get to it. Man, let's see where we're going to start tonight. I think one of the things, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on this evening is to discuss the ways in which, you know, uh, these professional leagues, college teams, the entire sports world really since probably September have really been pushing this idea that we need to get out of the get out and vote. And this is taking on new kind of urgency uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, uh, you know, how does this fit into the kind of long history uh, and why is this voting significant as well as what are the possible limitations uh, around voting uh, going forward? It's a great question, D. So, you know, I think it's always a good thing when um, when folks, particularly uh, of the caliber of athletes that we see in the NBA, um, in NFL, uh, Major League Baseball or even college college sports, step up to the plate and say, look, you know, everybody, everybody should vote. Right. Um, I think they're right. I think this is, um, this is one of the tools 
in our, in our, in our kit when it comes to trying to effectuate some fundamental systemic changes. So much hinges on our, um, our, on our vote, right? So much of this hinges on our ability to get to the ballot and get to the ballot box and make some informed choices about um, who our elected officials should be. We see what happens when we vote and the vote goes our way. Uh, and we see what happens um, when we don't vote and the vote does not go our way. Also, we see what happens when we vote and the vote does not go our way as well, right? So we see all of the possible outcomes, but we also know and understand that, you know, um, if you the, the fewer of us participate, right? Um, the more, the, the less likely our voices are going to be heard, our, the collective will of the people, right? The fewer black folk that show up to the polls, right? Then the less likely we can, um, the less, the less ability we have to hold elected officials accountable, right? If they don't think we vote, then they're not going to be pressed about, um, you know, making appeals to us, right? So, so to that end, I think it's always a good thing to hear to hear um, young brothers and sisters tell folks about the importance of about the importance of voting. Now, the challenge for this, right? Um, the challenge in this moment, as in other moments, right, is um, this this sort of generic call to vote, right? Um, as we've seen in, in you know, as we've seen in days past, right? And I know I don't have to tell my my two my two worthy constituents, the, the two hosts of this show, right? As we've seen in, in moments past, um, sure, it's fine to encourage people to vote, right? Um, but you gotta, but you have to be, you have to be, you, you can't be scared about telling, telling people what to vote for, mm. right? Or who to vote for, right? So, you know, if the, if the, if the general line is, hey, everybody go vote, well then, Right. You know, in this upcoming presidential election, if somebody votes for Donald Trump or if somebody votes for Joe Biden, it doesn't matter. Right. Because if you if you voted, then great, you did your civic duty. Right. Um, that's not the world I want to live in. Mm. <laughs> right? um, you know, and so so when we see and so the downside here, what, one of the potential what, some of the some of the some of the perils of this moment. Right. Is this the, the disinclination that that people in positions of influence, in positions of power, the disinclination they have, right, to, um, to be specific, right, the disinclination they have to say what we should be voting for. And again, I understand the disinclination, mm -hmm. right? Um, I remember um, I learned this lesson very painfully in 1990 when I first moved to North Carolina to go to graduate school at Duke University, go Blue Devils. And um, and it was the first Harvey Gantt campaign. Harvey Gantt is African-American running for Senate, running against Jesse Helms, um, North Carolina's favorite um, unrepentant white supremacist. Yes. Right. And, um, you know, and, uh, we, you know, people are throwing everything but the kitchen sink at Jesse Helms. The guy has been had been unbeatable for the last six terms or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. he'd been in the Senate um, since they built the building. Right. I mean, it's <laughs> a really long ridiculous time and so of course people turn to right you know north carolina's favorite son michael jordan mm -hmm. say basically hey mike you know it would be great if you came out in support of harvey Gantt, right um and we all know what jordan's you know what jordan's famous response to this jordan's response to this was no i'm not going to do that 
Republicans buy Nikes too. Mm-hmm. Right? Which, parenthetically, is why he will never be my goat. Ooh. Because Dominique Wilkins is your goat, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, push away from the bottle. Oh. <laughs> clearly, clearly, you've been drinking. <sighs> no. Um, wow. So, uh, you know, so, and, and so basically, so the point here is, right, so Jordan was like, I can't, I can't tell you to vote for or against anybody because that's going to hurt my bottom line. That's going to hurt my pocket. Right. Right. You know, that's going to hurt the sales of Air Jordans. So in a similar way. Right. You know, and, and so we really shouldn't you know, we really shouldn't be surprised when we see the constraints playing out um, with particularly with pro athletes. Right. Um, and even when we see pro athletes coming out and, you know, and coming out in response to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, right? The long, long, long litany of black people who have been murdered either by the state or by, you know, just your random one run of the mill white supremacists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, I, I appreciate the righteous indignation and I appreciate, you know, the ways in which, you know, um, you know, LeBron in particular, right? Are helping them or you know, helping to mobilize these collective responses to these moments, right? This is very powerful. This is, these are powerful messages that send shockwaves literally around the world, right? You know, they shut the NBA down, right? Mm-hmm. Shut, shut major league baseball down, right? For, you know, for a period of, you know, for a period of days, for, for one game or two games or whatever to say, we're not playing in the wake of this atrocity, right? Mm-hmm. That is a profound and very powerful statement. Again, the challenge comes, the perils of this moment come in, right? Um, this this sort of this sort of nebulous outrage that people are feeling, right? This nebulous outrage with regard to um with regard to black life and what should happen to protect and defend and affirm black life, right? There is a po- there are policy positions associated with the affirmation and protection of black life. Right. And so one of the things that's missing in this moment from, you know, from all of these people who, again, are doing are putting in this great work and I, and I appreciate it. But one of the things that's missing, right, are direct policy initiatives, direct policy proposals with regard to, for instance, police reform or abolition, as the case may be. Right. Mm-hmm. With regard to, OK, I have an idea of which candidates in which races best best represent our interests mm. right if somebody has been if somebody has been pushing pushing back against police reform right for the entirety of their for the entirety of their political career well then you know i i can't support them mm-hmm. right and i don't think you should support them either do black lives matter yes okay here are the ways people in positions of legislative power and influence are harming black lives by these by these policies by these laws and so the people who support these policies the people who support these laws if we say black lives matter and if we believe in the affirmation and defense of black life then that means drum roll right Right. some people people need to lose their jobs you about to lose your job right (laughs) (laughs) somebody needs to get sent home Right. And so that's the challenge in this moment. And we see 
Um, and, and again, we see we see some differences here in, in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of historical context. Right. During the age of segregation. Right. You know, athletes, you know, athletes were able to say, look, you know, segregation is a terrible thing, a bad thing, and it needs to go away. Right. Yes. Um, and so, you know, and, 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 and so there's no great big boogie monster. Here. There's no great big boogeyman here. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't we can't you know, we, we can you know, all of the claims, um, uh, uh, all of the claims for um, uh, uh, racial equality and, and, and equality and, and an end to violence and stuff like that. That's those are all really great and really powerful and really strong and also really nebulous. Yes. There are there are there are heroes and villains in this moment. We want to retain the people who have our best interests at heart, and we want to send home the people who would seek to defend or support policies that would lead to our premature deaths. Mm. They need to go home. Well, let the church say amen. I want to. Uh, we talked about this a little bit, Lou, real quick. I want to build on this because because uh, Dr. McKinney is a, a is a proud Morehouse brother, uh, and 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 I think there's been no clear example of the different kind of stakes than between the WNBA and the NBA, where the NBA and LeBron, who I think has put, I think done, gone above and beyond the previous generation great players in espousing kind of political affirmations and policies and stances. Uh, but the WNBA has, with with more to lose and smaller leagues, smaller revenue, smaller salaries, more to lose in this, in this environment, have taken a much more stringent and I think active stance by dedicating the season, for instance, in this past, in the WNBA bubble, uh, uh, to Brianna Taylor and going so far as to even uh, admonishing and uh, throwing their vocal and visible support behind uh, Reverend Warnock in Atlanta, Georgia against Loughner, who is the owner of a co-owner of the Atlanta Heat, um, uh, the Atlanta Fever. I think it's the Fever, right? The Atlanta- dream. I think it's the Atlanta Dream. dream. It's Atlanta Dream. Um, and I think that, that this is a really powerful statement where they've said, no, we're not just saying go vote. We're saying go vote for this guy to vote out one of our owners. That is a power. Like you talk about how there are enemies and villains in this circumstance. And I think that it's fascinating to watch this particular moment where you have these two leagues, professional basketball, men's and women's, and the men have taken a stance and gotten a lot of attention, but the women's league has not only taken a stance, but taken that position that you say that is about valuing particular kinds of lives, uh, and that there are uh, that there are heroes and villains in this this stake. Uh, and I think that uh, for those who don't know, the reason I noted that Chuck was a, a Morehouse man is that Reverend Warnock is the uh, pastor at Ebenezer. I think he's a pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, which is Dr. King's former uh, uh, home church. Uh, And I think that there's an interesting kind of parallel here in thinking about how we make, how we want these sports leagues to take active decisions uh, and decision-making. Real quick, do you got a comment on, on the ways in which the WNBA has, has, has presented its uh, attention to to voting uh, in this, in this particular, particular instance? That's a great point. Um, you know, and once again, it shows us that h- how so frequently black women are in the vanguard of our political movements. Right. Um, and, and being in the vanguard often um, 
and I should say in spite of being in the vanguard and in spite of sort of being the leaders in some really significant ways, right? Um, that leadership and, and that being in the vanguard is systematically sort of downplayed because again, it's the end of, it's the end, it's the WNBA, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, LeBron shines, you know, Le- LeBron casts a really long shadow. And I think you're right. I think in a lot of ways, right. You know, the brothers are taking their cues from the sisters, right? right? They're taking their cues from the sisters in Atlanta and sisters at and other at other sports arenas, right? You know, the the sisters playing on LA are no slouches, no slackers either, right? right? In terms of, you know, in terms of the ways they have stepped up in some really explicit ways, speaking truth to power. But so those so those sisters in Atlanta, right? I mean, you know, they 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 were like, we are calling for you all to defeat our boss. <laughs> <laughs> At the polls in November. I mean, that's brilliant. That's exactly that's what I'm talking about, right? Again, um, we have to we have to name the things, right? Yes. We have to name the issues, and we have to be clear, right? If we're going to play in these waters, right? If we're going to play in these waters, now is not the time to you know we only know half stepping, mm-hmm. right? You know, we got to name the names, identify the villains figure out who needs to stay and figure out who needs to go. And the sisters, again, as they have been in the past, right, are standing in the vanguard of, of this moment, which should also come as no surprise to us, right? In terms of, you know, when we think through and think about, right, um, you know, some of the most boldly articulated uh, leadership in this moment, right, is the, artic- is, the, is the leadership being articulated by the founders of Black Lives Matter. Right. right? Um, and so, you know, you've got these three, you know, three, um, three queer black women who have led a national movement, right? Who are in the process of leading a national movement, who started off, right? We move from a hashtag to some initial mobilizations to a an, a national and international, you know, a, a global movement, right? Black Lives Matter. You know, you got Black Lives Matter chapters, Black Lives Matter um, uh, mobilizations going on in Australia, New Zealand, right? Over in Asia and, you know, uh, in Europe, right? Um, uh, Africa, China, right? So, so this is a global, this is a global phenomenon. And so this is a, and, and I think this is really important too, because this is also another dynamic that we have to contend with here in terms of, um, in terms of who gets branded as a leader, mm. right? Who gets mm-hmm. identified as a leader and who gets identified as, um, and, and who does not get identified as a leader, right? You know, um, so for instance, if the if the if the founders of Black Lives Matter had been three brothers, oh my goodness! Right? Um, if that had been three brothers, right? You know, they'd be on their second dozen, um, um, you know, references in rap and hip hop. Right? <laughs> um, you know, uh, all of the you know all of the wannabe you know. Uh, There's this article that came out talking about Ice Cube and all these dudes instead of capitalists, they call them rapidalists. Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> all of the you know, all of the rapidalists would have wrapped themselves around those three brothers. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there would have been they would have been easily they would have been readily identified as ah, those those brothers right there, they're my leaders. Yes. Right. We've been we've been looking for the the Martin Luther King of our moment. There, there he is. He is mm-hmm. he's he is three people. He's these three brothers right here. Right. So the gender dynamics in this moment 
also have to be contended with. They have to be named and honored and recognized and have to be contended with. But since the since the leaders of this largest, right, the, the you know, the leaders of this largest, most influential organization in this moment, since those leaders are three women, it's a whole different ballgame. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a whole it's a whole different ballgame. The trajectories are all are, the trajectories are different now. And mm-hmm. the reason they're different is because of misogynoir. <laughs> right. Yeah. The reason they're different is because of 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 a collective inability to see them as leaders and to see other queer women, right? And other women, other people of color, other people who aren't dudes, right? Who aren't reverends, right? right? The inability <laughs> to see people, to, the inability to see and value leadership that doesn't get packaged like Martin Luther King, that doesn't get packaged like Joseph Lowry or Malcolm X or John Lewis, that doesn't get packaged in a black middle-class male body. Yes. Right? So that's the other thing that we have to con- we have to contend with here. Folks knocking around talking about who's our leaders, who's our leaders. We have leaders. You just haven't recognized their leadership. Right? We have folks who are who are speaking truth to power. We have folks doing all of the things that we are asking leaders to do, but you have but we have re- we have failed to recognize. Right? We have failed to recognize that leadership because it doesn't quite feel right. It doesn't quite it doesn't quite fit the narrative. It doesn't quite fit the mold that we're used to. And that and this is another reason that we're taking a profound hit in this moment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Lou, you got you want to come in with uh, I think you have a question. I'll tell you, I've been drinking. No, uh, <laughs> no, I think no. You know, what? it's it's exactly right. Even when we teach the civil rights movement, right, as a class, right, it's it's you have to actively try to tease out those names like a Joanne Robinson or a Septima Clark, right? So they're because they're not put in this normal thread of how you see the civil rights movement. So it makes perfect sense that that today, whether you're talking uh, BLM or whether you're talking WNBA players, that they do get overshadowed, right? And 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 I was writing um just a real shameless plug. So I'm writing the the forward for the for the paperback version of We Will Win the Day. Uh shout out to to to, to Kentucky Press. Um and and you know I'm and I'm just wrestling with this idea, right? With with WNBA players like a, a Renee Montgomery or a Maya Moore and and really how great they are because out of all the athletes, right? They're the only ones who who said, you know what, this is more important. I'm not going to play this year or this season. And I'm going to concentrate on this, right? Cause that's more important. None of the, none of the guys were willing to do that. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that needs to be highlighted more. The other thing that, that I try to try to figure out, right. As the sports historian is like, when did this change? Right. In in the sense that I say, when, like there's a moment, where the black athlete was vocal about who to vote. Right. And and so locally we talk about, you know, in the 1880s, you see stuff in the 1890s, et cetera, et cetera. But we're talking about on a big national level, you'll start to see it a little bit with Jesse Owens, but really with Joe Lewis. Right. And, and I know people discount them to say, well, you're just doing it because the party's like kind of tapping you. And that's part of it, right? Like part of the black athletes entry into politics was that they were black athletes. Right. and, and in order to, in, in in leaders' minds, right, political leaders' minds, the way to get the black vote is to get the black athlete. It's kind of what you're seeing with Trump trying to tap 
Ice Cube or Kanye or a Lil Pump. Uh, I don't know if that's how I said that really bad. Uh, <laughs> Lil Pump. Right? That's that's bad. That's that's. I said that very. Oh gosh, very 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 middle class white. Uh, uh, Lil Pump. No, my bad. That's my bad. Like, but part of it is like that's how you think you get those votes, right? And so you tap a Joe Lewis, but. What's interesting about Joe Lewis is that he was very clear when he was touting someone, even if he was wrong, like going with Dewey, he's very specific. I'm touting this person because this person here is best for civil rights for black people, right? A very specific thing. You see it with, with, with Derek's guy, Willie Gallimore in 1960, there's ads in the Chicago Defender, right? I'm voting for Kennedy, right? This is, this is who I'm voting for because Kennedy, blah, blah, blah. It's very basic line that somebody probably wrote and just slapped it on there but they're willing to put their names to these to these these politicians 68 you have wilt chamberlain taking a full page like a full letter to write about why he's for nixon right and i think what happens is and this is the important part where chuck mentions harvey gant i think that jordan moment right even before that we really didn't talk about athletes getting involved in politics but part of it is that jordan moment part of it is once you get that money those endorsements, right? You are thinking about the the corporation and not the community. And I think the other part of it too, where you'll see less athletes get involved in the post 1960s when it comes to vote is that I think the party did away, right? With, with the black voter. When I say the party, that is, there's no longer like a two party system going after the black voter, right? So, so when we see the, the black athlete most active in the voting process where they're publicly touting a candidate it's that really that small window right if we talk about u.s history where it seems like it's close right where where it could flip anyway right if i if i'm right what 60 was about 60 percent black um for for democrats and then then it shoots up to 90s right and and before that i think it was what more blacks went Republican for Hoover in 32 than they did FDR. But then you'll start to see that switch. But even then, there's still this kind of middle where if you look at black athletes, a number of them are going Republican, like for Ike, right? You know, Joe Lewis is a Republican. Matt Whitfield is a Republican. And then I think it's once they're done with it, I think 72-ish, they're done with the black athlete, done with trying to go after the black athlete and the Democrats have that black vote you'll see less of them being asked to be part of the political process, right? And I think they just, instead of saying, forget this, right? I'm just going to tell you who to vote for. I'm, I'm going to build on my own. I think they they just go away for a while. Um, recently, you've seen it, though. You saw, Le- I think LeBron went, what, Beto? He went, he went or he wore a Beto hat. He touted Hillary Clinton. Um, and now he's on this more than a vote thing. And I think, I think as I as I go off for a second, I think more than a vote has an impact to be big, right? Because it's really the first time since the 60s that we see a collective group of black athletes from across the range getting together to do something. But it also, it also should highlight how far we've backslided, so to speak, right? Because when the black athletes in the mid sixties got together with the black economic union, right? This is post civil rights. This is post voting rights. So the next phase for them was economics. Mm -hmm. Here we are. If my math is correct. Oh my gosh. Is it 55 years later (laughs) where the major movement is not economics anymore? It's trying to regain voting rights. Mm. And I think if we look at this process through the athlete's eyes, we could really see 
how far we've gone back. I mean, again, you go civil rights, voting rights, and then black athletes are like, yeah, we need capital. We need money. Right. And, and then they're, they're getting together. They're, they're funding things. They're, they're trying, you know, Kansas city Chiefs are opening banks. They're, they're, they're opening uh, restaurants. And now we're at the point where athletes need to get together and say, we need to maintain voting rights. That's just how far back we've gone. Um, and I think it's important then, as, as, as Chuck said, when you, and Derek said, when you have players like the WNBA, you know, Atlanta dream saying, no, you're voting her out. This is who we want. That's, that's powerful stuff. Like just say, Hey, go out there and vote. We're, we're beyond that saying vote for this person. And I think as I go off, then I'll, and I'll pass the mic. Um, oh gosh, how do I say this? Four years ago, I think this was the disappointment in, in cap. Not that look, my thing is you don't have to vote. You have, that's your right. You don't have to vote. But I think the disappointment is that he didn't see it on a local level as we talked about, right? He only saw that his vote vote wouldn't count in the presidential election because it really wouldn't because he's one of a billion people in California, right? That's going Clinton. But on a local level, on a state level, I think he had the power to shift a lot of things. And I, and I, and I wish that he would think in those types of ways. And I think, and I wish more athletes would think like that, right? How do we, change our local communities where we play, not necessarily where we live, right? Because someone like LeBron lives where, where, where is he at? Brentwood or right. Yeah. Something like but that. where, where we play, right. How do we shift those politics? And I think they'll have a, an even bigger impact right now. They're at let's restore voting rights. Everybody get out to vote. But I think the next step for them has to be, how do we shape where we live? I want. I want to. Uh, no, that's an excellent. I think that that kind of history of the the ways in which black athletes um, map onto the changing political uh, affiliations of Black America, I think, is important. I think it's twofold. I, I want to get Chuck in here because this is going to give me a chance to throw him a lob uh, about his his for, like his this project that he's been working on. We talked about this before. Uh, but you're talking about uh, a book project that you're working on, George Washington Lee, who was a, a black Republican operative out of Memphis uh, in the 60s. Right. And he's standing at the cusp. In many ways, he's a lot like Jackie Robinson. Right. Where he's standing at the cusp of African-Americans who still uh, believe in the Republican Party coming out of Reconstruction, this kind of long history. And they're grappling with the rapidly changing, rapidly more conservative Republican Party. How does George Washington Lee give us a sense of of this change? I know students always, I know you get the same question. When did Black people start voting Democrat at this rate right. <laughs> every day? Yeah. And so I yeah. think George Washington right. Lee is a great opportunity to talk about that. Yeah. You know, Lee is Lee is a really good um, lens through which to view this. And Lee is friends with Jackie Robinson. Right. You know, and so in a lot of ways, they're sort of going through this moment. They're going through this moment together. Lee is a, a lifelong Republican. He comes to Memphis after World War One in the early 1920s. Right. Establishes himself in, in the city um, is becomes um, the lieutenant, the second um, the second in command for Robert Church. The South's um, first, uh, you know, the son of the South's first black millionaire, mm-hmm. um, who is also one of the founders of the NAAC of the Memphis chapter of the NAACP, um, very influential African American Republican. He's playing on. He's playing in national waters. Creates the Lincoln League, uh, which is the uh, an assemblage of black Republicans from across the nation. Right, and so 
So Wash, so Lee is a, a, again a lifelong Republican, and and he sees the shift coming, right? He sees the shift um, starting in the nineteen in the nineteen fifties, and he's not a you know he's he's smart. He's a good he's a political operative. So he sees that there's going to be a shift, and he sees that the Democrats are getting better and incrementally better on civil rights, and so. Um, so he, he moves his position, right? You know, his initial position, um, well, I, sh- I shouldn't say he moves, his, his position evolves, right? One, he's a lifelong Republican. He says, I think this is the party, right? This is the party of Lincoln. This is the party that has been our home. This is the party where, crucially, where we, if we have to change the dynamics of the party, we have more of a chance to do that here in our home party than we do with the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. right? That's his that's his initial position. Right. And that position then evolves. Right. Because, again, as more and more African-Americans switch to the Democratic Party, the other thing that he says is like, look, you know what? If we if if folks want to go to the Democratic Party, that's fine. But we can't all go to the Democratic Party. (laughs) If we all go to the Democratic Party, then nobody then nobody has to fight for us. Mm hmm. Right. If every if all of the black folks become Democrats, the Republicans are like, oh, we can wash our hands of black people. Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about trying to appease them. We don't have to worry about that. They're going to vote Democrat anyway. And if we're all Democrats, the Democratic Party will say, hey, you have nowhere to go. We can do whatever the hell we want. Throw you a bone or maybe, you know, or maybe give you some substantive reforms every once in a while whatever, whatever. But we know you're not going to vote for the Republicans. We know you're not voting for, you know, we know you're not voting for Ronald Reagan, right? We know you're not voting for anybody named Bush. We know you're not voting for uh, Donald Trump. So therefore, right, you know, we get to hedge our bets in terms of, you know, in terms of how we're going to push for and advocate for, um, for, uh, for your votes, because we know you literally don't have anywhere to go, right? So, so, So Lee, is really mindful of this, is really mindful of this shift. And he understands, he understands the shift and he understands how important it is to have black folks in both major parties so that their play, so that their vote can always be in play. Right. Like with just so much like other, like other ethnic minorities, right. Right. You know, um, folks are out courting, you know, folks are out, you know, Republicans are always out courting the Cuban vote. They're always out courting the, the, the Latinx vote, always out courting the Jewish vote because you don't know which because it might go one way. It might go the other way. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, so we lose that ability, says Lee, if we all wind up in one party. This is a very prescient, very prescient point. Right. Um, Jackie Robinson, as you all know so well, you know, um, stays in the Republican Party. Um up until you know 1964, when we see the Goldwater moment, he's profoundly sh- he's shook by that moment, right? And he still places his faith in Richard Nixon, mm-hmm. right? He he campaigns for Nixon in '68, he, and he's also imploring Nixon, "Look, you know what? You have to maintain, you have to keep up the civil rights legacy, the civil rights mantle of the party of Lincoln." Right. Nixon's like, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Fine, fine. And then he gets elected. And he was like, what mantle? <laughs> what like I'm out. Right. You know, we're getting ready to roll all of this. We're getting ready to roll all of this stuff back. And that's when Robinson finally, you know, that's when Robinson finally leaves the party or a few years before, you know, a few years before he dies. And so and so we see and so we can see over time. Right. How these dynamics are changing. And we can see over time the again, the perils and prospects of aligning ourselves, of black folks aligning themselves with one party 
or another party. Right. So, um, so yeah, so George Lee is, 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 is sort of, is very emblematic of, of, of that, of that shift. No, I think that's an important point that we, we, that often gets lost in this discussion about the, the changing over parties or, or, uh, the, the kind of, I think, uh, superficial is probably being nice, uh, claim that, you know, uh, Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass were Republicans, right? Because it ignores this kind of important history. And I think that the, the thing that you, you pointed that African Americans uh, begin to align themselves with the Democratic Party is that those very same Southern Democrats that, that Lee, uh, uh, the reason that he was a Republican in the first place, they switch over to the Republican Party, right? And this is part of that, that it's a twofold switch. It's not just a simple African-Americans leaving the Republican Party and going over to the Democratic Party, but also Southern Democrats, those Dixiecrats, uh, you know, between 48 uh, and 64, slowly making their way over uh, to the Republican Party. And I guess this is a good segue because we're, we're almost at 40 minutes. I want to segue really quickly into uh, Ice Cube since he's now the uh, co-owner of the Big Three. I, this makes this a sports story. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, that uh, one of the things that has happened in the last, I would say, 10 days or so uh, is that Ice Cube has come up with this uh, contract with Black America, uh, and he supposedly shopped it with both parties, uh, and he received a favorable uh, meeting with Donald Trump. And I think this gets to the point, right, where I think this old school, we should shop this uh, uh, up, but I think it also speaks to the failure of this whole generation of telling people simply to just vote, Right. That one of the things that the civil rights movement was was the most important part that I always teach is that there was a tremendous amount of political education in happening. Right. We're talking about freedom schools and citizenship schools and uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and Lowndes County Freedom uh, Freedom Organization. And these parties were helping local black people really develop a kind of political acumen to understand not only the national circumstances, but their local circumstances. And that this whole push to just vote doesn't take in any of that political education that we'd like to see in the in the communities where they play, as Lou noted. And so I think this is interesting. How do how you know, Chuck, how do we how should we as scholars um you know grapple with someone like Ice Cube? Because our students um are are probably too young to remember uh they remember Ice Cube in the uh, Are We There Yet? They don't remember uh, death certificate, ice cube. They don't remember death certificate. <laughs> they don't remember. I want to kill Sam. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, so how you know what are we to make of this? Uh, given our historical expertise oh, uh, yeah. in this political oh, moment. So you know, I, I think Ice Cube is instructive. This is uh, Ice Cube. God bless him. This is this is the student who ain't who hadn't done any reading, who wants <laughs> the class and wants to lead the discussion. <laughs> right um you know i think back in you know back in the day right um start showing my my 53 years back in the day um you know 60s when we think about when we think about um when we think about uh, you know athlete activists back in the day when you think about um you know jackie robinson when you think about bill russell when you think about you know lou l cinder slash kareem abdul jabbar muhammad ali right when you think about when you think about these cats um, 
and their their political education. Uh, Derek, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? There is, you know, they're, they're being immersed in, they're being educated and they're willingly being educated, right? They're immersing themselves. Um, they're, they're, they're talking, they're in dialogue with, with some of these, with the civil rights icons that we often teach, right? They're learning about issues, right? You know, Kareem didn't just sort of go off half cocked, right? Kareem's reading constantly, mm-hmm. right? He's a voracious reader, right? Um, and so, so the education that, uh, that, that athletes were receiving back, you know, back in the day, the education that they availed themselves of, right? I think that goes a really, I think that goes a really long way. I think the other dynamic that we have to really sort of lift up in this moment too, is that athletes in the, in, in, in previous moments, and this gets back to this idea of, 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 of sort of national networks and organizations, very clearly identifiable national networks and organizations, right? So you can get your political education from an individual who is a member of the NAACP, an mm-hmm. individual, a member of the Congress of Racial Equality, right? <laughs> SNCC or, you know, or CORE or the Panthers, right? Or a local organization that you, where you, where you live, right? That may be affiliated with one of these organizations or may not be affiliated, right? But is engaged in the work of, is, is, but is engaged in the work of, of, of building freedom for black folks, right? So there are networks and organizations where this political education is happening. So there's an immersion of sorts that can take place. So people who are saying, look, I want to be engaged. I want to be involved. It's a honeycomb effect. They know that there's some place they can go, right, to get this good knowledge, to get this understanding, to get a sense of to get a sense of what role they can play in this process. They're still autonomous actors, right? Nobody needs to tell Bill Russell what to do, mm-hmm. right? They're still autonomous actors, but they're also acting very intentionally in response to the needs that have been articulated by people in these organizations, by folks in these networks, by people who know what they're talking about. <laughs> so they're not going off and, you know, they're not going off and spinning off um, and saying, hey, oh, hey, you know what we need? We need we need black people to we need black people to, you know, buy more cactus. That's what black people need to do. What the hell are you talking about right now? What? Huh? What? Where'd you get that from? Right. Right. You know, so we see, you know, so when we see these, you know, these black athletic summits, you know, in the in, in 1960s and 1970s, that's, a, that's a, those are those are being crafted in a very specific response. Of like this is what we can do in this moment to advance a larger, wider agenda. Here's how we can work in our wheelhouse to do that, mm-hmm. right? And so that is a function of reading. That is a function of an awareness. That is a function of education. Cube, God bless him, he ain't done none of that. Yeah. right. Or at least not enough of it that I can tell, right? Because what happens is when he comes up and says, look, I got this plan. I got this hot set of ideas. And I'm a set of ideas you know, uh, according to Q, right, you know, his version of this is that he went to both parties. Now, the Democrats are saying, yo, you canceled your meetings with us. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear about that. They're like, uh, you canceled your meetings with us. Right. So, no, you did not meet with us. And it's not because we stood you up. It's because you said, hey, let's have a set up a meeting and you didn't show up at any rate. Right. He comes up with this platinum plan. And when you read the plan, Right. And other folks have noticed this and other folks have talked about this. Right. Greg Carr, mm-hmm. um, who's the director of um, African-American studies at Howard. Brilliant brother. Encyclopedic. 
you know, he 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 made a, he made a great observation. It was like when you look at the the, the his platinum plan, sixty percent of it is on is already on Joe Biden's website. Right, <laughs> right, right. None of this stuff is new, right? And I was just knocking around in a couple of other in a, on a couple of other um couple of other articles and stuff. And um, Barbara Lee and other folks are like, "Yo, dude." How come you haven't met with the Congressional Black Caucus? The Congressional Black Caucus. Right. You're running around talking about you want to advance black people. Well, why don't you meet with the black people? Yes. Right. And 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 so their point was they're like, yo, your platinum plan, this platinum plan looks dead on the Jobs and Justice Act of 2020 that we have crafted. Right. So so Ice Cube is running around. You know what this is like? This is like in 2020, Ice Cube is running around like, hey, y'all, check this out. Check out this hot, check out this hot lick right here. Uh, Lottie Dottie, we like Lottie. <laughs> oh, oh, dude, we've already heard that. That's not new, man. That ain't new. That's not hot. We heard that back. Somebody dropped that, you know, uh, uh, Slick Rick dropped that back in 1985. My freshman year in Morehouse. That's not new, dude. <laughs> wow. That's just new to you, man. That's just new to you. So for the platinum plan itself, this is not innovative. Yeah. This is not revolutionary. Right. This is stuff that we and this is the contract with Black America that Tavis Smiley put out. This is. Some stuff that we've seen from the Congressional Black Caucus. There's a whole bunch of this stuff we've seen. Uh, you know, all, a bunch of this stuff is on the Black Lives. You know, the movement for Black Lives. I mean, you know, he was basically he Frankenstein a bunch of stuff together and was like, "Here's my bold new plan," and my bold new plan is Lottie Dottie, right? right. You no, know, my bold new plan is Hard Knock Life, dude. Yeah. That's not new, and the reason he did that was twofold, I would say. And I know we got to wrap up, but this twofold, if you had been in communication, mm. leaders, for instance, of Black Lives Matter, but you're not because they're three sisters and you don't want to get with three sisters. If you had gotten some political education under your belt, right? And you had come to some folks and had been in deep dialogue with some folks who are really serious about trying to move us forward, right? Then those folks would have told you in love that, yo, man, this we we know this already. Yeah. We got this already, right? I mean, you know, you run around and talk about empowerment zones. Man, what the hell? Jack Kemp, the Republican dude, was running around talking about empowerment zones back in the 1980s. Exactly. This is none of this stuff is new. So that's why, so that's the other reason why this goes over like a lead balloon, right? And so then when you want to jump, you when you want to jump into bed with the, the you know, with the most white supremacy. Of the white supremacists we've seen in the American, you know, in the entirety of the American presidency in the 20th, 20th and 21st century. Yeah. Right. Talking about, well, you know what? I just want to help anybody who wants to help black people. I'm down to work with them. Dude, what? Uh, I'm not political. Oh, my. What? Right. <laughs> yes. What are we even talking about right now? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And so it's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to tighten up again. And this is the last thing. My, um, one of my boys, a new commit, um, who was a lawyer, who's an attorney um, in uh, in D.C., he was like, you know, and he and I were talking, um, shout out to you, Anu. Um, he and I were talking this past weekend. He was like, you know, this is like, he said, if if a brother, if he was like, if I had come up to Cube's studio and said, <laughs> oh, Cube, um, 
I want to spit something for you. Uh, I'm not I'm not a rapper. I've never really rapped before in my life. Um, I don't really have any rhymes. Um, but uh, you know, but uh, you know, I'm gonna I want to put something on wax, and I have every expectation that you will um that you will record it and um and get it uh, and 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 push it through a you know and push it through a record company and dist- get it distributed um out to the people. <laughs> He's like Cube would laugh. Cube would Cube would punch me in my face and and physically throw me out of his studio if I can't half step in, in his studio talking about yo I got a I got a plan. It's this half baked half ass plan, and I want you to help me to execute it. He would throw me out of his studio. Right. Well, I think that's that's not how this works. I want to like I I want to just pick I want to just follow this up real quick because I think that this is those Chuck has laid it out for us. I think I think the thing historically that is problematic for me is and, and you pointed this out with Greg Carr noted this like we've been having these conversations for decades, right? Right. Like, you know, like there are, there are whole books on the 1972, uh, you know, uh, black political agenda, including uh, including uh, the challenge of blackness. Um, oh, <laughs> oh, man. Oh, look at I, that. Book drop. Book drop. <laughs> book drop, book drop, book drop, book drop. Uh, but, you know, like I, one of the things that I, you know, I said this to Lou before I said, like, look, 10,000 people showed up at Gary, Indiana to try to develop an agenda. Did we not get a Zoom call, a link, or anything? Like, you know, like at some point, like Ice Cube was in conversation with no one but himself, it seems like, or maybe a couple other advisors. And it looks like he came up with this brilliant plan. Um, but that anybody who's done, you know, a lick of reading could have seen that this was uh, um, pretty pedestrian. The second point, I think, is we got to remember that Cube, uh, it struck me is that Cube has not, uh, evolved in his thinking since death certificate <laughs> since he dropped bombs like Khalil Muhammad yes that, yes that, are we allowed to say that yeah, or no? yeah, I, don't yeah. know. I don't know you can't I don't know if you, that's appropriate you said it though sorry it's a quote it's a direct Take quote it it's, it's a quote it's a direct quote, it's a direct quote. Yes. but no I think that that's interesting to see and I think Chuck you know this when we teach black nationalism we always note that there's this this strong conservative streak inside of black nationalism, right? This is the right. the streak that, uh, you know, that ends up getting, you know, uh, matter of factly, you know, Jim Brown and others in this Trump campaign, right? Because there's this sense of this notion of empowerment, right? This capitalist uh, ethos. Um, and I think that that's, those are the two things I wanted just to add to that point that we've been having this conversation, you know, literally since, you know, we could vote. Right. With the 15th Amendment, but also more recently since 72. And so when I see Ice Cube or Diddy, like we got to have a third party as if black people didn't have a conversation about having a third party once before. And I think that I think your point about how uh, the previous generation of black athletes were honeycombed within organizations and were, uh, you know, by their own desires, trying to become um, well-versed in these issues. I think that we, we, we have seriously missed some of these points and this gets us all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, right. To kind of bring us full circle here 
is that, you know, when you don't have that in-depth reading, when you don't have those those in-depth conversations with black organizations, uh, whether it's Black Lives Matter or even the, you know, the Congressional Black Caucus, even in 2020, it, it seems like you can only come up with Uh, I think some very simplistic approaches. And I think that black women, black women athletes who have not had the luxury of ignoring these issues um, have, have, have led to a much more uh, developed and robust political education and political kind of uh, uh, verve uh, in their approach to, to not only just voting rights, but, but black political activism in general. And so when Lou, when you write this introduction, I'm just, you know, this is my edit. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh, gosh. When you write this introduction, oh, I think nice. that, that part of what we have, I think, you know, the, the thing that readers have to really grapple with is that black women athletes who have always been part of this story, but never have gotten the kind of credit that they deserve have in this moment, right, where we talked about Kaepernick, and I think your critiques are excellent, and when we talk about LeBron, um, they, both of those individuals have not gone as far, at least politically, uh, as the women in the WNBA and in other sports. Boom, you just wrote my forward. No, 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 no you're exactly right, right? And I, and I think that's the whole, we, you know, as you say, come a full circle, that's the whole point, right? Like, um, we we don't do enough to to sit back and, and let let others shine and then then pump them up. And I think we've we haven't failed, but I think his history has failed us without you know giving us and and really promoting promoting names like a Fannie Lou Hamer or Ella Baker or a Septima Clark or even you know Elaine Brown, right? Who should should you know have their moments and should be household names so that so that we don't get to this point. But just real quick, when we talked about Ice Cube and black capitalism, we talk about going back, like Nixon tried this, right? Like this, when we talk about, we're familiar with this. I mean, Nixon literally tried to hijack black power, <laughs> right? That, right? That that was, and it, and for some folks, it, you know, George Jefferson and them, uh, it, it, it worked, right? Like that's the whole point of, of the Jefferson. It, right? is, um, it is, it is. But here we are, right? And and I think that's just the most cautionary tale is is the summer of 2020 and every summer before that, right? Where where you could talk about capitalism, you could talk empowerment zones all you want, but you're still dealing with the same thing from day one, and that is not only these injustices, but pl- like things like police brutality, right? And and I think that. That if you're not willing to be very specific in your politics, then 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 we're gonna have a problem. And I think that's the next move where athletes can help out. It is like I don't think their corporations are gonna do it. The corporations are gonna do the funding, right? And and hopefully their corporations can 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 fund all those grassroots, right? So the NBA starting their own thing, or NBA players starting their own thing, Mike Jordan starting their own his own thing fund these grassroots but as athletes use their platform be very specific in, in what you want and if look if you're if you're if you're a trumper or you're a black capitalist or, or or that's who you are then then that's fine right i just do the reading and and be ready for 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 people to come at you don't be ice cube and, and say how would twitter treat treat malcolm x in 1961 <laughs> right and then when we look up it's like damn why why 61 malcolm x met with the kkk that year right like they would have come out malcolm x right they would have came out him in 62 for for not protesting 
police brutality, right? So, so just, I guess my message is always be prepared. Do the, as, as Derek likes to say, do the reading, right? And, and then we can get to, to a place where, where we need to get. We will always take a hit when the, the object of the game for, for black leadership Right is to come up with a is the is is to come up with a is to build a society where black men get to be better versions of white men, mm. right? Where where we're where we're trying to cultivate and build um, a new and improved uh, white masculinity, mm-hmm. right? You know, which lies you know when I think about this, which sort of lies at the core of this, right? That's the hit that cube is taking that's the hit that so many of our leaders are taking right in terms of having these blinders on with regard to gender right? absolutely you know, and black women um you know black, you know i love the t-shirts it's like black women tried to tell you <laughs> right right, you know, right. they've been trying to tell us for a good little while now right that you know that for instance that black capitalism is not going to save us yeah right Black capitalism doesn't stop you from getting murdered by the cops, right? Black capitalism doesn't stop, um, you know, predatory lending and home loans. Black capitalism doesn't, is not going to close the achievement gap, right? You know, black capitalism is going to, you know, is going to make, it's going to make more black capitalists, right? right? That's not going to, but that doesn't translate into fixing, you know, that doesn't translate into a living wage. That doesn't translate into more, a greater access to healthcare. That doesn't translate into an end of voter suppression, mm-hmm. right? doesn't transfer to the, you know, that, you know, and so again, you know, when we read and when we understand the capacious nature of the, of the struggles that we face and also the interconnectedness of these struggles, right? That there is something connecting, right? The struggles of black men and women, right? You know, um, straight folk and queer folk, trans folk, right? You know, um, cisgender folk, right? You know, so when we start to make these connections, the connections that folks like Colors and Garza and Tometi, and this is the thing, right? It's not like you have to like dial up, right? You, and you have to dial up, you know, um, Garza, Colors and Tometi. And if you can't talk to them, then you got to go, you know, you're on your own. Right. <laughs> right? You know, I, you know, rumor has it that Ice Cube lives in a large city. you know i'm gonna step out on a limb here and say that there's a bunch of amazing people amazing brilliant people in his city who are putting in some great work right right that he is clearly not connected up with yet yeah right in terms of helping him think through and think about these issues yeah Right. Yeah. And so, you know, again, this gets back to it gets it gets back to do the work, brother. But it also gets back to right the blinders that so many of us have on when it comes to right the possibility. Right. There's some sisters out there who know what they're doing, who know what they're talking about. That maybe, just maybe, we should listen to and gasp, looks around, and whispers. Maybe we should follow their lead. Yes. Yes, that's it right there. I mean, I don't think we don't need no more words because let, we let Charles McKinney, who is the Neville Frierson Bryan uh, Chair of Africana Studies and Associate Professor of History at Rhodes College in Memphis 10. Uh, thank you for your time, brother, man. It is great to have you on. This is a, a, a poor substitute to our conversations that we get to have at Asala every year. So I hope you and your family are well. 
Uh, I just want to put this on the record. I saw your two boys on, uh, on, on the Instagram or Facebook or something the other day, and they are both taller than you. Um, mm. so, mm. <laughs> so <laughs> Godspeed, brother. Godspeed. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Hey, it was a, always, it's, it's a pleasure, um, pleasure to hang out with y'all and, uh, happy to do it again one day. No problem. Ma- all right, thanks. And and listeners, if you hear my email going off at the end, that's because a student who has until midnight trying to take an exam is trying to take the exam at eleven at eleven forty five. So I am putting out fires <laughs> during our podcast. So there we go. See what had happened was what had happened was oh. hey, the exam was to be done on Friday. It is Monday at midnight now. So I have got yeah, this is where I'm at right now. So <laughs> Thank y'all for listening, man. All right. right. Peace. Peace.